Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee and let's let's get get our fix. All right, today, addicts, we are going to be talking about the broomstick killer. And we are drinking a vanilla shaken espresso brevet iced because it's actually really hot right now. Of course, iced. Always iced. (laughs) So if you're interested in knowing some delicious at-home recipes and some of my favorite products, you can head over to our website at crimeaddictspodcast.com. We want to give a huge shout out to our fellow crime addicts, specifically Misty H, Nail Felony, and Tanini. They have commented, rated, reviewed, and shared our content across all social media outlets. We couldn't do this without your continued support and willingness to spread the word about our podcast. So thank you guys so much. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please go and like, follow, rate, review, share, comment, do every darn thing on all of our social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or at crimeaddictspodcast.com. You'll find there a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. There is also a beautiful donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper, click our link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Kenneth Allen McDuff was born on March 21st, 1946 in Rosebud, Texas, and was the fifth of six children born to John and Addie McDuff. He had one brother, Lonnie, and four sisters. However, he and his brothers were the troublemakers, and Kenneth was the younger of the two, so he looked up to Lonnie's violent troublemaking behaviors. In fact, Lonnie even died in 1986 in a fight over a woman. Unlike what we typically see, neither abuse nor poverty caused McDuff's problems. His hardworking parents made a comfortable living. McDuff's father ran a successful concrete business during the Texas construction boom of the 1960s. His mother was nicknamed the Pistol Packin' Mama because she threatened a school bus driver with a gun after the driver kicked McDuff's older brother off the bus. She was that one mom we all know doting on her baby boy and would angrily confront anyone who said her boy had done something wrong. You could say that she had some violent tendencies. McDuff was known to shoot his .22 rifle at living creatures and was often getting into fights. At Rosebud High School, McDuff earned the reputation of being a bully due to being pampered and spoiled. With these behaviors, he was well known by the sheriff of his hometown. He was careful to pick on weaker classmates until one of them challenged him to a fight. This boy was an athletic, popular kid named Tommy Sammons. McDuff was 6'3 and 200 pounds, but Sammons beat McDuff badly. As a result, he quit school before completing the 8th grade and worked for his father's business doing manual labor. McDuff would often brag in later interviews that old ladies loved the way he mowed their lawns, making others jealous. McDuff's criminal record began two years before his first murder conviction. In 1964, at age 18, 
McDuff was convicted of 12 counts of burglary and attempted burglary in three Texas counties, Bell, Millam, and Falls. He was sentenced to 12 four-year prison terms to be served concurrently. However, he was released on parole the next year in December of 1965. McDuff briefly returned to prison after becoming involved in a fight, but was soon released. His future accomplice, Roy Dale Green, later said that McDuff bragged openly about his criminal record and claimed to have raped and killed two young women before any convictions occurred. McDuff met Green at age 18, around September of 1966, through a mutual acquaintance, and Green was fascinated by McDuff's boast of sexual conquest and cruelty. On August 6th of 1966, the two spent the day pouring concrete for McDuff's father. That evening, McDuff and Green were drinking and driving around Everman, Texas. Soon, they came across a car parked by a baseball diamond. Near the parked car were two men and women, Mark Dunham, 15, his cousin, Robert Brand, he was 17, and Brand's girlfriend, Edna Louise Sullivan, who was 16. McDuff and Green approached the vehicle and ordered the three people in the trunk of the cars at gunpoint with his 38 Colt revolver. McDuff and Green drove both of the cars to a remote area where McDuff then fired six shots at the two boys in the trunk of the teen's car and shot them in the head despite their pleas. Miss Sullivan was then driven to another location and raped repeatedly by both men. Some reports say she was violated with a three-foot broomstick and then strangled by McDuff with the broomstick. Then they dumped her body in some bushes, stopped at a Millsboro gas station, and then went to Green's house to spend the night. The following day, McDuff buried his revolver beside Green's garage, and their mutual acquaintance, Richard Boyd, allowed McDuff to wash his car at his house. Green couldn't take the pressure when the murders were announced on the radio and confessed to Boyd's parents, who told Green's mother, who convinced him to turn himself in. McDuff was arrested by the Falls County Sheriff's Department. In exchange for his testimony against McDuff, Green was given a lesser sentence. At his November 1966 trial, McDuff insisted he had lent his car to Green and had no knowledge of the killings. The jury took less than four hours to find McDuff guilty of murdering Brand, which meant death in the electric chair. Green later pleaded guilty to participating in the murders of Dunham and Sullivan and served about half of a 25-year sentence. McDuff was on death row for six years when a Supreme Court decision temporarily struck down capital punishment in the United States in 1972. His sentence was commuted to life. This eventually caused overcrowding in the Texas prisons, and so it was decided by Texas authorities that it was safe to give some inmates their freedom. McDuff's pistol-packing mama hired a top attorney to win freedom for her boy. Between parole hearings, he took correspondence courses and generally stayed out of trouble. During a one-on-one -on -one interview with a parole board member, McDuff offered him a bribe of $10,000 to secure a favorable decision on the parole application. He was given a two-year sentence for trying to bribe the official. However, it proved meaningless as board members thought McDuff could still 
quote, contribute to society and decided to grant him parole in October of 1989. McDuff was among the 127 murderers and 20 death row inmates who rode out of jail on a wave of paroles. After being released, he got a job at a gas station making $4 an hour while taking a class at Texas State Technical College in Waco. Although never officially charged, another suspected McDuff victim was 31-year-old Serafia Parker, whose body was found just three days after McDuff's release from prison in Temple, a town 48 miles south of Waco, along the I-35 corridor. Miss Parker had been beaten, strangled, and dumped in a field. Although released on parole, McDuff made no attempt to show he had been reformed. He was convicted of making threats and trying to pick fights with others, and even for public drunkenness and a DUI. He began drinking heavily and became addicted to crack cocaine. Nine months after his release, he was back in jail after pulling a knife and threatening the life of an African-American teen. McDuff's mother paid $2,200 for two Huntsville attorneys to evaluate her son's prospect of release. On December 18, 1990, McDuff was again released from prison. On October 10, 1991, McDuff picked up Brenda Thompson, who was a drug addict and prostitute. He bound her hands behind her back and parked his car 50 feet from a police checkpoint. When a policeman walked towards McDuff's vehicle, Miss Thompson was seen attempting to kick out the windshield of his car and cracked it several times. McDuff accelerated and drove past the officers, causing three of them to have to jump out of the way to avoid being hit. He was chased by the policemen, but he eluded them by turning off his lights and traveling the wrong way down one-way streets. Ultimately, he parked his truck in a wooded area near U.S. Route 84 and tortured Miss Thompson to death. Her body was not discovered until September 29, 1998. Five days later, on October 15, 1991, McDuff and a 17-year-old prostitute named Regina Deanne Moore were witnessed having an argument at a Waco motel. Shortly thereafter, the pair drove in McDuff's pickup truck to a remote area beside Texas State Highway 6 near Waco. McDuff tied her arms and legs with a stocking before raping and killing her. She had been missing from home for seven years by the time her body was discovered, also on September 29, 1998. McDuff is also believed to have murdered Cynthia Renee Gonzalez, 23, who was found dead in a creek bed near County Road 313 in heavily wood terrain, one mile west of I-35 on September 21, 1991, which was six days after she was reported missing in Arlington. On December 29, 1991, McDuff and a close friend, Alva Hank Worley, were driving around looking for drugs. Worley later testified that McDuff would point out specific women along the street that he would like to take. That night, they saw Colleen Reed, an accountant who was washing her car at a car wash. McDuff grabbed her in front of eyewitnesses and forced her into the car. Witnesses called the police, but they were too late. Worley admitted in an April 1992 interview with the Bell County Sheriff's Department that they had raped Miss Reed and tortured her with cigarettes, but he stated that he did not participate in her murder. McDuff dropped Worley off and later disposed of the body. 
Macduff's next victim was Valencia Joshua, a prostitute who was last seen alive knocking on Macduff's door. He strangled Miss Joshua on February 24, 1992. Her body was discovered on March 15, 1992, at a golf course near their college. While working at a quick pack market, McDuff developed a fascination with his senior manager's wife, Melissa Northrup. Mrs. Northrup was 22 years old and pregnant with her third child. On many occasions, McDuff mentioned wanting to rob the store and take Mrs. Northrup. On March 1st of 1992, Mrs. Northrup did not return home from her shift and her husband grew worried. An investigation was launched and it was discovered the kidnapper also took $250 from the cash register. At this time, a college friend of McDuff's came forward and told police that McDuff had attempted to enlist his help in robbing that store. Although McDuff did not work at the Quick Pack Market anymore, eyewitnesses were able to identify him as being in the area of the abduction, as well as at the site where Miss Reed was kidnapped. On April 26, 1992, Mrs. Northrup's body was discovered by a fisherman in a gravel pit. She had been strangled with a rope and her hands were still tied behind her back when discovered. The fact that McDuff's post-release victims were spread out across several Texas counties made a coordinated investigation difficult. However, the police learned that McDuff was peddling drugs and had an illegal firearm, both federal offenses. Consequently, on March 6, 1992, a warrant was issued for his arrest. In April of 1992, Bell County investigators had brought in Worley for questioning on the basis that he was a known acquaintance of McDuff's. Worley admitted to his involvement in the kidnapping of Miss Reed. He was held in a Travis County jail while the police continued their search for McDuff. At this point, McDuff had fled Texas to Kansas City, Missouri, where he obtained a new car and a fake ID under the name of Richard Fowler. He became a garbage collector. In early May 1992, soon after Miss Northrup's body was found, McDuff was profiled on America's Most Wanted television show. His co-worker had recognized him only a day later and called the police. Through investigation, they found that Fowler had been arrested for soliciting prostitutes and his identity was confirmed through DNA analysis. McDuff was pulled over on May 4, 1992, during a garbage stop and became America's Most Wanted 208th successful capture. McDuff was indicted on one count of capital murder for Mrs. Northrop's murder in McLean County, Texas, on June 26, 1992. During this trial, he was rude and disruptive. He even tried to represent himself, but could never provide truthful accounts of the night Mrs. Northrup was killed. He was found guilty. Now, it was up to the jury whether he should receive the death sentence or not. On February 18, 1993, the jury in a special punishment hearing opted to sentence him to death for the murder of Melissa Northrup. Following the trial, where Mrs. Northrup was the victim, McDuff was then tried for the murder of Miss Reed and was even more disruptive this time around. Although her body had not been discovered at that time, he was convicted of killing her based on strong circumstantial evidence and eyewitness accounts. He was again sentenced to death. 
Following a number of delays, while appeals were heard, the Western District Court denied habeas corpus release and rescheduled the execution date for November 17, 1998. Just as a note for our addicts, habeas corpus is defined as a writ requiring a person under arrest to be brought before a judge or into court, especially to secure the person's release unless lawful grounds are shown for their detention. As he was denied authorization for another appeal, he gave up Miss Reed's burial location a few weeks before his execution. On September 29, 1998, he was even taken out of prison to provide the exact location of the remains for Miss Moore and Miss Thompson's bodies. While on death row, McDuff was housed at the Ellis unit with the other men sitting on death row in the state of Texas. On November 17, 1998, Kenneth Allen McDuff was put to death by lethal injection in the Huntsville prison, and at 6.26 p.m. Central Time, he was pronounced dead. McDuff is buried at the Captain Joe Bird Cemetery, also known as Peckerwood Hill, in Huntsville, Texas. Prisoners buried there are those whose family chose not to claim their remains. Now, I have a picture of a headstone here, and so I'm going to try to describe it to you. But I am also going to put it on our website with this episode and also we'll post it on Facebook with the discussion questions. So this picture is the picture of a headstone that is a cross. And in the upper vertical section of the cross, it has the date that he was executed. So it says 1-1, and then underneath it, it says 1-7, and then underneath that, it says 9-8. So that would indicate November 17th of 1998. In the horizontal cross, it says the letter X, and that means that he was executed by the state of Texas. And then the X is followed by the number 999055, which is his death row number. His last meal, according to death row chef Brian Price, was a hamburger fashioned to resemble his request for a steak. His last words were, quote, I'm ready to be released. Release me. Following his arrest, Texas began an overhaul to ensure that no other criminals like him were able to get out on parole. Collectively, the new rules in Texas became known as the McDuff Laws. They changed the rules and improved the monitoring upon release. The state built new prisons, expanding from 38,000 beds to 140,000 beds. They clamped down on paroles, uh, imposing a 40-year minimum sentence for capital murder. Good time was significantly reformed, and minimum parole eligibility doubled for violent offenders. And the pace of executions picked up, and Texas executed more killers than any other state. So I'm going to read an excerpt from a Texas Monthly article titled, Free to Kill. This is quite a long article full of all the facts that we just discussed. However, I did want to read you an excerpt to give you an idea of the panic this town endured upon receiving the news that McDuff was freed from prison after sitting on death row. The article reads, Kenneth McDuff is one of the most sadistic, vicious murders Texas has ever produced. Why did the state parole board put him back on the streets? 
21 years after he should have died in the electric chair for the savage murder of three teenagers, Kenneth McDuff was back on the streets as cocky and mean and dangerous as ever. In the small central Texas community of Rosebud, where McDuff grew up, people pumped shells into shotguns and shoved heavy pieces of furniture in front of double and triple locked doors. Quote, this is a walking town said John Kilgore, the editor of the Rosebud News. But these days, you see very few people on the streets. Macduff's return has scared the hell out of this town, end quote. At festival days in the Falls County seat of Marlin, word spread like wildfire that Macduff had sworn to show up and kill one person for every day he spent in prison. Tommy Salmon, who had humiliated Macduff in a playground fight in the eighth grade, worried about his teenage children. A man who had once prevented Macduff from crushing the throat of a young woman with a broomstick, a dress rehearsal for what Macduff would do to a teenage girl in southern Tarrant County some months later, pushed the button on his telephone answering machine and was greeted with the sound of three gunshots. No question about it. Kenneth Macduff was back in town. So that was the quick little excerpt, you completely got the fear and the concern that was spearing around the town. But before we go into our discussion questions, Kylie, I actually have some pretty interesting facts. Oh my go gosh, over. so do I. <laughs> <laughs> this guy had so many fun facts when, I was, he, when we were researching. Oh my gosh, I'm so ready for these discussion questions. But um, okay, so one of the first interesting facts was that he is the only person in American history to have ever been assigned two different death row numbers. That's insane. The only one ever. And that's probably for good reason. Yeah. I'm glad that nobody else, that it that mistake didn't happen again. Right. Exactly. Um, I actually also have an interesting fact that goes like kind of along with what you said. So did you know that he was also believed to be the only condemned man ever released from one of, like from being on death row to return to death row for another killing? idiot <laughs> i thought that was crazy like not only did you fuck up once like and then you didn't learn like we talked all. about this in a previous episode like the whole point of the prison system and the jail system is so that you can hopefully learn from your mistakes go back out into the world and do better yeah and he showed no like so rehabilitation or reforming at all at all which is a fun fact because it goes into my next fun fact okay which I found incredibly crazy and it really ties into what he last said um, before he was put to death, Mm -hmm. which so he actually had a psychologist examine him Mm -hmm. and that psychologist said that he had no soul. But I mean, is that shocking? We're reading what he's done. Is that really shocking? And literally his last words were, quote, I am ready to be released. Release me. Like that gave me chills when I first read that. Well, yeah, because you're like, you're clearly about to be injected with something that is going to kill you. And he's like, oh, release me. Yeah, I'm good now. (laughs) Like, and like, I almost feel like based off like what the psychologist said and like what we just discussed, it almost makes me feel like he didn't get it. Like this never clicked in his fucking head that this is reality. This is real life. And he probably didn't ever realize it. I mean, based off of what we Mm -hmm. said, right? So he doesn't have a soul and he's saying, oh, just go ahead and release me. He was given a chance at freedom. He ended up killing more people. He 
even instilled fear into people to the point that they were idolizing him for these sadistic behaviors. Like he just, I feel like he did not comprehend life at all. No. You know he what I had mean? A, he had a different perspective on life. Right. It wasn't the normal no the normal thing that right we all have. and i mean there's all these um like speculations of other victims being involved which is kind of the last thing that i found was that he was thought to have killed up to 14 people so i mean wow. he wasn't convicted of that many but you know how it goes when you get on death row they kind of stop prosecuting for the other victims and not because the vi- other victims don't serve justice they attribute those deaths to that offender so that mm-hmm. the family has somewhat closure. of closure if that's yeah. even a thing but um it just costs so much money you know to prosecute somebody especially on another death row case another death row case and in how many different counties and you know i think attorney it's so crazy to me though like when you think about it is that our government for the most part might be limiting what they do in like the terms of prosecution Like, the fact that finances are even, I I mean, I get it, like, our world basically revolves around money, but when we're talking about prosecution, putting people to death or serving them their time, like, why is money even an issue right now? I know, and so, you know, can Can you imagine, like, I'm I'm sorry, this is, like, making me crazy, but can you imagine (laughs) being on, like, the reciprocal end and being like, yes, this person deserves to be put to death, but sorry, we have to wait because we don't have the funds, and then, like, being the family of the victim being like really money money is what's stopping money is what letting this guy is what's letting him or her just continue to live and let me just go ahead and take that burden off of you and take it into my own hands (laughs) i'm sure is how some of them feel (laughs) yeah right i'll make it cheaper and i'll make it easier for you i got a shotgun right here let's just we'll be done done. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean we see this um we'll and you know we've seen it before we'll see it again that they just pick the victim's case that they have the strongest case against and they prosecute them on that case, uh, whether that be like in this particular case, it was Mrs. Northrup because mm-hmm. they had the body and mm-hmm. they had they had eyewitnesses, you know, whatever they have. And yes, he had multiple cases, but they picked the victim that they had the strongest case against, prosecuted him. And obviously in this particular case, it ended in capital punishment. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, the execution portion of it, like, executing the execution um it does take a process i mean there are the appeals process once you get you know convicted of capital murder there's an immediate appeal process that gets started right away you know Mm -hmm. and they go through all those things every state is going to be different Mm -hmm. and how many appeals they allow or every case is going to be different and you know i think it even goes all the way up the political chain you know of like the governor and the the president of the united states and all that kind of stuff it does become political and um and then how that changes every four years at least right and then also like who is uh your da at the time i Mm -hmm. mean that's an elected position as Mm -hmm. well so i mean i think there's just so many things that play into it that it's not like okay you're getting sentenced to death so we're taking you from court to the to the execution room see you later you know and like as much as I think probably, I mean, I can't speak for the victims' families, but, you know, especially them or some other people, voters that would prefer that it happened that way, that's just not ideal. Yeah, it, it's definitely not cut and dry. And I think that, you know, I, with you explaining it that way, it helps me to kind of understand it a little bit more. It's just, you know, nothing ever is going to be exactly how 
we want it to be. There's or how it's perceived be, to be. Right. There's anything. always going to be, I mean, how many hands are in that jar? Right. You know, you just described mm-hmm. it at the very minimum. Yeah. You know? <laughs> lots so, and lots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has to go through all those alleys, which in some cases are beneficial because there has been history where, you know, someone was put to the death penalty. They went through their appeals and found out that this person was innocent sure. or whatever the case Absolutely. may be. So like it, it goes back and forth. Like, yeah, you think that they deserve it, but what if it is that one, not this case, obviously, right. but there's other cases. Right. Or what if they're admitting to crimes that they didn't commit just because they're trying to get the death penalty. Right. Well, right. And then there's know. like the swap. Yeah. So, I mean, it does go, like, so many different ways, and we're fortunate for, um, you know, services such as, like, the Innocent Project Mm and attorneys who spend time doing this, especially if they take on the case pro bono, you know, stuff like that, and provide services to inmates that, you know, otherwise have nothing or, you know, their rights are just really diminished at that point. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I... I do believe that there is a process and it sucks because sometimes it's like, okay, but we have a murderer on our hands who admitted to killing and there's evidence that proves that he killed 30 women, yet he's been sitting on death row for 30 years. Why was he not the first to go? Yeah. If you're going to do it and you're going to impose the sentence and he was convicted of that, do it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. because while it costs money to execute, it also costs money to keep, to them keep in him there. Prison. You're, they have food. Mm-hmm. They have running water. They just have to have clothes. the bed the yeah. bed costs them every day well and not mm-hmm. to mention they met like in the laws they had they expanded the amount of beds and mm-hmm. stuff that they have but even to this day i mean all through the pandemic a lot of jails and prisons were overpopulated mm-hmm. so they were letting people out oh so left if and right. you're sitting on death row for how many years why are you still there right I'm sorry but like right. what what's going on right but texas did that preventative measure knowing that you know the Supreme Court ruling in 1972 that halted all executions in the United States could potentially happen again, which is why they said, well, that's fine, but we're going to prepare for that. So Mm -hmm. that's what the McDuff laws state, you know, that if that does happen again and you do, for whatever reason, become eligible for parole, if your sentence gets commuted to life with the possibility of parole or whatever the situation may be that's going on in the political (laughs) season of life, Mm -hmm. um that you do have to serve that minimum of 40 years, which just gives everybody a little bit of time, you know, well, a lot, but time to prepare, you know, and we don't know, obviously, how long they had been sitting on, every person's going to be different, how long they'd been sitting on death row by the time their sentence gets commuted, or, you know, the laws go through that prevent executions or something. It hasn't happened since 1972, but there's no saying that it couldn't happen again, Mm -hmm. you know, so... I think there's like a lot of different things to take into play here. And like, there's going to be obviously all of our addicts out there are going to have an opinion on whether they are for or against the death penalty. And uh, we're not going to debate that here. But uh, I just feel like if this is the state of Texas, this is their law. This is the conviction that he received. This was the sentence that was imposed. Mm -hmm. And so it's up for discussion as to why did it take so long or what Mm -hmm. was the process we were waiting on or was it necessary? Should it have been done sooner? You know, I mean, I think that's a valid question. If you're going to do it, you know, how, what are we waiting for kind of a thing? Yeah, definitely. But speaking of discussion questions, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the woman with all the questions. The woman with all the questions. I got lots. And apparently oh. I'm one of them that have some answers. <laughs> <laughs> you better. <laughs> oh man. My favorite question is why, but okay, we'll get into that. So <laughs> always, it's always. always why. <laughs> well, just why? Does somebody explain to me why? 
why was this necessary? Why did he do it? Why, 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 why? But my first question I'm going to pose to you. Would McDuff have continued killing if he was not stopped? I'm looking at you with the most stupidest face ever. <laughs> yes. Duh. Duh. If like, there's anybody the out meme, there. The meme with the hand out here and the neck completely yeah. sticked out. Like, <laughs> duh. <laughs> I um, I can totally picture exactly what you're talking about. But um, if there's anybody out there that disagrees with us on this answer, please let us know. And let us know why you think that. Yes. I want to. I'm really curious to if there's anybody out there that does believe that he would have eventually stopped. I want to know why you believe that. Because, I mean, let's go. He was already left. He, he was out of prison and then he kept killing mm-hmm. and then he was put back in so yeah and i also read in an article i don't know if you saw this but i read somewhere and i didn't wasn't able to corroborate it so i only saw it in one place and so i didn't see anywhere that didn't say that this like said that this didn't happen but there was a conversation that was documented between him and his parole officer when he first released that said i don't know if it's Something along the lines of, and don't quote me on this, something along the lines of like, I don't know if it's going to be in one week, one year, two years, or whatever. Um, Like a certain amount, he like listed off a bunch of amounts of time and said that, but he doesn't know when, but basically bodies are going to start turning up. (laughs) And so, and like, what do you do as his parole officer at that point? I mean, you're obviously going to try to keep an eye on him, but he's not reformed, which means he's obviously not abiding by his parole terms and he's traveling to multiple counties out in the state of Texas that he may not have been allowed to go to. And I mean, he was drinking. That's not allowed on parole. He was using cocaine. That's not allowed on parole. You know, so he was in no way, shape or form. He had a weapon. I I mean, in no way, shape or form was he in compliance with his parole conditions. But, uh, I think that just goes to show, I mean, he had a second chance at life and he chose to literally waste it. Yeah. He didn't care. So I just want to know if anybody disagrees. That's what I'm concerned. That's my big thing. Yeah. So if um, you and and to any of these questions, l- go to our Facebook group page, Crimatics Pod, and we will actually post these discussion questions and the tombstone that Kylie mentioned earlier. That'll all be onto our uh, Facebook page as well as our website. So either one you find easier, um, but it'll be kind of cool to have those those discussion questions um, posted on our Facebook page. Uh, and also, don't forget to hit the like button while you're there. Okay. Um, <laughs> my next question. Are you ready? What was his main motive? Uh, hmm. I think for me, this to me is pretty clear. And I'll tell you my answer, and then you can tell me if you agree with me or not. How's mm-hmm. that? Does that mm-hmm. work for you? Go ahead. Okay. I think that this was completely sexual in motive. Mm-hmm. Because every single one of those women that he killed, he didn't, you know, steal things from them. He didn't. It was basically all he took them, he bound them, he raped them, and then he dumped their bodies and went to the next one. Yeah. And and the guys that he dealt with, quick deaths. Just done with them. Like right. Like, he didn't really... Mm-hmm. He didn't spend any time on them. Mess around with them. And how many other accomplices did he get involved in this? And they all did the same thing. They participated yeah. yep. in the raping. The rape, yes. At least. Mm-hmm. The raping. Mm-hmm. So... Definitely sexual. I, I agree with you. Okay. Yeah. So, is does anybody else have any other opinions? Please let us know. Okay, one more question. As a parent... Where is the line between supporting and believing in your children versus just flat out enabling? Okay. I was waiting for a question like this. So. (laughs) Let's go. Let's bring it back 
uh, to the very beginning where we were talking about his childhood, right? Right. So older brother was super violent, troublemaking behaviors. That's what he looked up to. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mom didn't seem to stop that at all. In fact, mom seemed to enable his older brother's behavior by, I I mean, I was like, oh yeah, pistol packing mama. That was her nickname. But if you also know that your son is like a freaking troublemaker and then the bus driver kicked him off, I would be turning around to my son and being like, what did you do? Right. Why did you get kicked off the bus? Not pointing a gun at the bus driver. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you know that he's a troublemaker. So mom it. had violent so tendencies. Mom, brother had violent tendencies. Mom, mm-mm, mm-mm, <laughs> not okay. So then we did mention, you know, he doesn't have the, um, like the precursors of being abused or having like a hard childhood. He had, from what it seems like, like on the outside picture, a pretty decent childhood. So is this nature or nurture? However, we have here that he would shoot living creatures with his rifle and then he'd always get into fights so to me that's not uncommon we hear that in a lot where a lot of serial killers their signs as younger kids were shooting killing or abusing experimenting with animals right so (sighs) mom could have done i think a lot better in the sense of not being this like overbearing type of parent, but actually like putting your foot down in discipline. Right. It, it seems like that wasn't there at all. And probably not displaying those violent tendencies would be a good start as well. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Because that just showed, I mean, every single kid looks up to their parent, especially if there seems to be a good relationship there in general. Right. And so if I see my mom pointing a gun at the bus driver, hmm she got away with that okay i can do that too right yeah what's going to stop you from doing it exactly so i believe that i i mean i i agree with you so just in to follow up with that would you then make the argument that this was nature or nurture nature okay because nature basically refers to your genetics and all of the factors that you have inherited okay mom has violent tendencies your older brother has is a freaking violent person in itself so for all you addicts if you are caught up to all of our episodes our last episode uh when we went into resendez i feel like that case is more of a nurture case because his his history and his you know upbringing was very different and very hard and i feel like that could have been if if that yeah, yeah if that was different then his future could have been very different Right, but here we're seeing a kid who has a stable home, no abuse, mm-hmm. no he has support. I mean, he dropped out at the in the 8th grade, so he wasn't the brightest crayon in the box, but <laughs> he, but he made it. But yeah, he still he had going. the support of his parent, like yeah. his mom was still very much babying him, you mm-hmm. know. So, even though he didn't necessarily have the intelligence, that doesn't mean anything he still had a job from his dad he was able to support himself through that yeah i mean they were talking about him being a drug addict and drinking and stuff he was able to support that he sounds like a brat yeah he does i mean and honestly like i have to agree with you it has to be nature for me Mm -hmm. you know so um, so you had asked like initially you know where's the line between supporting and believing in your child versus flat out enabling this was flat out enabling it is a very thin line yeah, but I agree. I feel like 
uh, I think that line is thin, invisible, dotted, <laughs> but yeah. it does exist. It does exist. And, and I'm sure it's going to be, you know, it, it's not cut and dry either, just like what we were talking about earlier. But at the same time, I feel like, dude, how, how does the mom not see what's going on? Right. You know? And it's, but it's crazy though, that like he got to the end of his life. So for somebody who was, you know, such a mommy's boy and everything, he got to the end of his life, he was executed and he was buried in a cemetery where they bury bodies that are not claimed by the family. Yeah. So we know, I don't know if, I couldn't find anywhere where it's stated whether his parents were alive at the time of his execution. And we do know that he lost his brother Lonnie, mm-hmm. but he still did have four other sisters and uh, as siblings. And, mm-hmm. you know, who who knows what other family uh, alive at that point. And nobody jumped up to claim the body. So him. I'm wondering if that's out of like shame because I read a whole bunch of, articles about the victim's family being there and everything like that but none of them said anything about Mm. his own family being there at the time of his execution yeah i mean it could be shame maybe they finally realize like oh my gosh this is real right i mean did his family like all die off over the years Mm. or did they just you know kind of decide to cut ties you know they got to move on with their own lives life Mm -hmm. i mean you're sitting in a prison cell on death row where you probably don't see the light of day very often, yet life goes on for everybody else. For everybody you know? else, yeah. It has so, to. It just makes me wonder. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other thoughts or comments that you want to add to any of the questions that I posed? Do you think we kind of covered it or do you have anything else? I think we kind of covered it. If I do have any more, I will put it in the comments on the post. Perfect. So, <laughs> so we can get more, uh, get what you guys think about it too. Yes. So, okay, we will go to the Facebook page. Crimatics pod hit the like button and go to this week's discussion questions you'll just scroll down a bit as tay said it will have the picture for this week that we discussed on this episode about his tombstone and it will also have the three discussion questions so in review just so that you have some time to think about it while you're getting over to our facebook page the first one is would he have continued killing if he was not stopped number two what was his main motive and number three, as a parent, where is the line between supporting and believing in your children versus just flat out enabling? So head over to our Facebook page, like, follow, share, subscribe, All the send above. it to everybody, <laughs> comment on our discussion questions, let us know. Tag your friends, tag your mama, tag your daddy. Right. And before we wrap this whole episode up, Tay, I just have one last comment to say. <laughs> the broomstick killer is a fucking terrible name. (laughs) It does not roll off the tongue. (laughs) But I think all serial killers should have names like this. Like, fuck you. You're a piece of shit for killing all these people. So we're going to give you a terrible name in society. Like, that's the last straw. You shouldn't get a cool name like Zodiac. You should get a name like the Broomstick Killer. The Broomstick Killer. Bastard. It really is a really bad name. It's like, terrible. When you think about it, I was like, oh, this is kind of like dull. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, he deserves it. We'll yeah, it that way. no, definitely. All right. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on the grumpy dwarf who didn't have a good day in his whole damn life. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and, and stay, stay caffeinated. caffeinated.